It's good to be with you again. Happy spring to you all. All right, if you have your Bibles, we will be in Psalm 91. And since I'm a teacher, as most of you know, I like interaction. So we're going to be not doing something totally abnormal, but we're going to be reading through parts of this text. And as we read through it, I'm going to want to just give you guys opportunity to shout out in whatever way is appropriate for you, like categories of what you see. So I'm going to, I'm going to start with a, a story that I remember being in the news a lot as a kid. And since all of you have a little more gray hair than I do, I'm going to assume most of you remember this as well. We're going to be taking a look at God of Protection. Let's see if this works, and it does. Does anyone recognize this face? Any thoughts? Does that Sam somebody? It is not a Sam somebody. But I will give you another picture that will probably help you out. Anyone recognize that face? All right, so what is that face representative of? Anyone remember who this was? Yeah, he was the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, right? So same guy. Isn't it interesting, though, that the sketch of him is more memorable than his face itself? And in part because uh, this was like when forensic science started to like meet with art and became like a public thing, if you remember how that kind of transpired. And this, um, this was like a unique time, and I did research, obviously. I don't remember this as a kid. I just remember his face showing up a lot. He, he mailed bombs for 17 years. All right, and, and he had like a, an agenda against technology. He was pretty sure computers were going to take over the world, and so this was back in the 80s when computers were becoming a thing. And he, the sketch of him became famous when someone observed him walking into a computer store, him walking out, and then the computer store blowing up. And so this was one of the first major composite sketches that became circulated. You know? And so what do they do with a composite sketch is they have a person try to remember what a person looks like, and then they try to like get the eyes right, and they try to get the ears right, and the nose right, and the chin right. And technology's come a long ways, and so now they can use computer programming, but surprisingly, there's still a lot of sketching that happens. But what is the major problem with sketches? Any thoughts? <laughs> they are sketchy, right? And if you put the two faces side by side, you're like, yeah, I could, I could see... I can see that. I can see Ted Kaczynski in the drawing. But it also depends on the fact that human memory is really, really good. And, and what do we know about human memory? It's not so good. And so sketches depend on you looking at a face, being able to remember it well enough to then use words to describe it. And one of the things we're going to be taking a look at today is taking a look at three sketches that the scriptures are going to give us, specifically in Psalm 91. Uh, and the sketches we're going to be taking a look at is the sketch of Jesus and those wasp, the sketch of Jesus, the sketch that the scriptures are going to give us of Satan, and the sketch that Jesus is going to give us of ourselves, or this psalm is going to give us of ourselves. And so what I'd like to do as we work through it is I'm going to read part of the text, try to unpack a little bit, and then you kind of tell me what is, what is the accurate sketch that we see here. Because these three individuals, you, the serpent, and Jesus, our Savior, are central to our lives. They're central to who we are. And if we get the sketch wrong, in our minds, we're going to start moving in the wrong direction, all right? And we're going to end up becoming something less than what God has intended us to be. Is this thing, should I kill it now or just let it be? What's your thoughts? You won't hurt anything. Yeah? All right. So as long as it doesn't distract everyone. And I guess if it stings me, that'll be. If he stings you, kill it. 
then I'll kill it. Okay, we'll let it, we'll let it be. All right, so as we, as we look at these, it's just important to remember that our understanding of these three beings, Jesus, the devil, and ourselves, is often wrong. And what are we going to do about that? And what we can do about that is we can take a look at what the Bible tells us about these three. And again, Psalm 91 is a weird place to go because it definitely shows us this, the devil, it definitely shows us Jesus, and it shows us ourselves, but it uses symbolism and metaphor. Uh, and that's part of the reason why I enjoy it. So uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to read in just a minute, but I'd like to open with a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll unpack this psalm. Lord, we want to thank you for your word that does give us clarity. I pray, Lord, that we would have a, a sharper picture in our mind of who you are, of who the devil is, and who we are in light of your truth. And in any area or place where our, our drawing in our mind is inaccurate, help us, Lord, to be able to make those corrections in our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read out of the old NIV, just different than the new NIV and whatever other translations might be out there. So I'm going to start and read through verse 9. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you, no no disaster will come near your tent. And we'll pause right there. So Psalm 91. All right, and we'll we'll take a look here. We're going to take a look at first at Jesus, the Lord who I'm going to call the unsaved promise maker, which is going to sound almost heretical until you follow through with me, all right? So we're going to take a look at this. This first word is really this word of dwell. And if you notice, it, it's at the beginning, it's the first one, and then he also brings it back up in verse 9. Um, what is the difference between visiting and dwelling? Any thoughts? Oh, I went ahead. That's all right. <laughs> Any thoughts about the difference between visiting and dwelling? When you, when you visit, you leave, and when you dwell, you stay. Yeah. Any other thoughts that go with the difference between visiting and dwelling? That's a huge one. What about manners slash comfort level? So when I was five years old, I visited my grandpa for the first time in my life, and I was short even then, I was shorter even then, of course, and he had a white leather couch, hence the picture, and we were sitting on the couch, and, he, and I got in trouble because my feet were on the couch. All right. Now, there was no way for me to sit on that couch without my feet being on the couch because, again, I was short. And that was just like one of those first moments like, oh, this isn't home. This isn't home. I can't, I can't operate here the way that I would operate at home. And so for the rest of the trip, I had a great time, but I was also a little bit on edge, a little bit walking on eggshells. Like, so what other things are rules here that I don't know about? Because that became very clear. I am a visitor, not a dweller of this house. And the difference that God is calling us to, he says, notice the word, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Not a person who comes to visit on a regular basis, not a visitor, a person who dwells. And then if you take a look at verse 9, right? If you make, if you make the Most High your dwelling, which suggests what? It's It's a choice. You don't have to dwell with God. You can be a visitor all your life. 
You can be a person who comes and hangs out with him occasionally, and then you go home, and you go back to your routine, and his standards and his way of thinking and living don't have to become yours. And that is very much a challenge for us. So we want to be people who are dwelling. And we have, again, sometimes this idea of like a future dwelling. Like, isn't that what heaven is after all? Dwelling with God forever? But that dwelling isn't, doesn't start when we die. This psalmist is calling us to dwell with God now. And when we close our eyes in this life and open them into the next, it's just a transition physically but not spiritually. The dwelling nature just becomes more real, not, not like it wasn't here before. And so the psalmist is calling us, live with the reality that heaven is, is not just some future thing. Heaven is now. The Lord is dwelling with you now if you decide that that's what you want. And so he says, if you make the Lord your dwelling, then we get these promises of protection, that he will be our refuge and that he will be the one who does all of this. Now, I ask a question of you, and this is where we come to the category of defining what do we see of Jesus here? Okay, and this is where the idea of dwelling becomes a key. Did Jesus dwell with God all of his existence? He did. At the same time, what kind of blessings and promises did he experience when he dwelt? Did he have a a nice place to stay? He did not, right? Luke tells us that he says, I don't have a place to lay my head, and yet I dwelt with God. So was he protected? Did he experience the protection of God? And he, he doesn't. And that's why I mean when I say he's the unsaved promise maker. Because he's going to fulfill everything in this psalm and yet not experience the blessing of the fulfillment. In order that we may experience the fulfillment. Because we're going to find ourselves unable to do basically anything in here. At least if we're honest with ourselves. All right? And so as we take a look here, Jesus wrecks our simple sketches about God and our understanding of the world. Because we have a tendency to think, well, if I do what's right, then my life is going to be easier. And sometimes that's true, but is there examples that we can think of where if you do what's right, you seek to dwell with God, that means your life actually gets more complicated, more difficult? And again, we're going to see Jesus is the, the unsaved promise maker. He's going to make these promises to us, but then he isn't even going to experience them himself. And so now we're going to take a look at a couple of the metaphors that the scriptures use. He says, if you make the, the Lord your dwelling, if you make him the almighty, you, he will be a fortress and a rampart to you. What's a fortress made out of, generally speaking? Rock, Stones and rocks, right? Modern day ramparts would have concrete. They didn't have that back then. So this is a nice picture of it. I don't think, I don't think any castle or fortification would have looked quite this nice. But this is to give us encouragement in this way. When arrows are slung at this thing, does it notice? Not at all, right? Because the impact of an arrow, the impact of a spear, a sling, any of the weapons they would have had at that time frame would have done nothing to this. And on one sense, he says, if you make God your dwelling, you are making your dwelling in something that is impervious to attack. That God's plan and the place that he's going cannot be stopped by Satan. It cannot be stopped by people or governments or even you. That his plan for you is like concrete. It's unbreakable. It is the symbol of strength and how unaffected by things God is in a way. But I want you to take a look at the next, the next way it makes a comparison. Look at verse 4. So we have this idea of a rampart and a fortress and a wall and a castle, all these strong terms. And what do we see in verse 4? He says, he will cover you with his feathers 
and under his wings you will find refuge. All right, you get the picture here? God is comparing himself to what? A bird. Does that strike us as weird? Is it just me that's like, God's like, I'm like a giant chicken. We're like, what? Yeah, but that's, that's what he's going for, right? If you look at this picture closely, what's underneath of this goose's wings? All the little birds. Now, what is the difference between being covered by a wing and being covered by a concrete bunker? There's a lot of differences, right? One is way more like inviting in a way, like no one's going to cuddle up in a concrete bunker and be like, oh, concrete. But a mother bird, definitely. But when rain comes or hail or wind or storms of any kind, who takes the brunt of all of that in order to protect the babies? The mother does, right? It's not a concrete bunker that remains impervious to attack. It's the picture of a mother bird taking, taking the heat, taking the rain, taking the storms by covering the babies underneath of her care. And that's the next imagery that God gives us of his protection. And Jesus borrows this language when he goes into Jerusalem, if you remember. So as he's walking into Jerusalem, he looks out on Jerusalem. And if you remember what he says, and I'll just read it for you out of Matthew. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that killed the prophets, how often I would have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you would not. Jesus uses the same imagery of himself to say, I would be the one to take the hit for you. I would be the one to take the rain, the storm, the sin damage that's been done. I would take it as a mother wing would cover babies, but you would not. You're like the chicks that instead of running to the mother, you decide to run towards the wolves. Right? And that, that goes against nature. I mean, pretty much always, if there's danger, where do the baby, baby chicks' hens always go? Right to their mom. But he's saying, you don't even follow nature's orders. You are such a rebellious people that you refuse to go to the one person who can actually protect you. And if we had time, could we all tell stories of how we've done that ourselves? Found ourselves finding refuge in something other than God and it ultimately doing what? Hurting us. Robbing us of something. And that's the danger of what could happen, is that we could actually find ourselves not just not dwelling, but actually running from the only person who can protect us, who can take care of us. And Jesus says, if you would come to me, I will protect you. Because he's going to perfectly follow the example of God. And here's what we're going to see. Jesus wrecks our simple sketches of God's love and protection. Right? We think of love sometimes being conditional, and it's not, at least with God. But there is, I guess, in one sense, one condition. You have to come to him. You have to at least surrender and say, please, I can't do it myself. I'm a little chick in a hard world. I'm never going to make it without you. And he says, I will cover you with my wings. And what is the greatest example of his covering us and taking the hit himself? The cross. So a week after he calls to Jerusalem and says, if you would come to me, I would save you, but you are not willing. Five days from the time he says that, that same crowd of people that are shouting Hosanna, which you guys will, cel- will all celebrate Palm Sunday in a few weeks, that same group of people is going to turn around and declare what? Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. And in that dark place, what do we find? We start to see the sketch of who is God. He's the one who loves us beyond our understanding. Right? This passage is saying, if you do this, then God will do this. And if you do this, God will do this. And if you trust him, you'll be protected. But we find something even deeper here. 
He says, even if you don't trust me, even when you run away from me, I'm still going to send my son to save you. I am still going to take the hit that you deserve. And so that's, a, that's to open our hearts and our minds. When that truth strikes us, that he came to save me when I was far from him, when I was shouting crucify him, when I was shouting Jesus isn't the one I want to surrender to, at that point he still came. And so this psalm starts to lay out for us, if we say, in you I trust, we find, we find everything that we could possibly need. So he's going to go to the cross. He's going to keep his eyes on, on the Lord. Now look at verse 7, right? A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. And one of the things we see about the cross is who is Jesus surrounded by? Wicked people. And does he just see suffering? He experiences suffering as an, evil, as an evil person, even though he was not evil. So that he can look to us and say, you the evil will not experience what you deserve because I experienced what you deserve in your place. So he says, he has the opposite of this. He sees the wicked around him. And it's not just that he sees them. He experiences what they deserved. And he curses not a single one of them. And that's crazy. So again, Jesus is the opposite of this psalm. He does all the things right and has all the things bad happen to him so that we can stand in a place of righteousness and say, a thousand may fall at my side, 10,000 at my right hand, but I'm not going to experience death. Not because I'm righteous, which is what this psalm sort of alludes to, but because he was righteous, perfectly righteous. And so here's the sketch of what we see of Jesus, right? We see that he's so different than we expect. The, the protection that God offers us comes at cost to himself. The love that he gives us comes at a great cost to himself. And so the sketch of who we're supposed to be seeking after is laid out for us in a, in a way here. But this passage actually has a lot more, in a way, a lot more to say about our adversary, the devil, right? Uh, we'll skip that one. And so here's we see the, the simple sketch of punishment and wickedness. He's surrounded by thousands of people who hate him, and he curses not a single one of them, and experiences death. He just doesn't see it. He experiences it. All right. So, the evil one. Satan's sketch that we often think of, um, we get our picture from weird places. So, just to throw this out there, Satan only speaks, as far as I can tell, three times in the entire Bible. Three times he says something. Can anyone think of when he starts talking? The three different conversations he has where we actually have his words. What's that? Yeah, we're going to end with that one. He speaks to Jesus. What's that? He speaks to Adam and Eve, and there is one more time where we see literal words coming out of Satan's mouth. Job. Isn't that strange? Of all the times in Scripture where Satan is mentioned, we only have three conversations that he has total. And we'll we'll start with Job real quick, um, because that's kind of the order I'm going with. (laughs) Here here we have Job and in his interaction, and behind the scenes— We see Satan all the time. So one of the things I want you guys to think about for a minute is behind what we think we see is always more. That's Satan's biggest strategy, by the way, is to keep you from looking at what's true. All right? So what do we see in this picture? What's what's behind the scenes? Can can anyone see it? We see some elephants. Is anyone not seeing the elephants? There's an elephant there. There's his foot. There's another elephant there. Okay? This one's kind of tricky. I'll give you a clue. You're looking for a giraffe. 
I'm I have a point, by the way, and this isn't just for fun. Yeah, right here. You see the giraffe. He's like well blended in with the tree. Right? Now, if you don't see an elephant, you don't see a giraffe, how dangerous is that to you? Maybe the elephant. But elephants aren't really out to get you. Giraffes definitely aren't out to get you, right? So if these things you miss, no big deal. But there's a leopard in this one. You see it? Right here? What happens if you don't see that? That's a, that's a different problem, right? Yeah, that's going to hurt. You may not walk away from that one. All right? And so one of the things we see about Satan is we have these mental pictures of what he's like. And we have a tendency to think of him being overarchingly in our faces, but I don't think he is. And if he can get our eyes misdirected to either give him more, more credit and more power than he deserves, or to keep us focused on the wrong thing, he wins. He wins. And the language that the psalmist is going to use is pretty much deceptive, like deceptive language. That's his biggest strategy. But he also wants to make the case, is every evil thing in the world directly laid at the feet of Satan? And seemingly, no. Satan will use things, but there are things that happen because we live in a sinful, fallen world, and it's not necessarily that Satan did everything. Right? So we have pestilence and plagues mentioned in this text. Now, maybe Satan sent pestilence and plague, but not all the time. Sometimes God sends pestilence and plagues. Sometimes bad things just happen. So COVID's a pretty horrible thing. I think we're, I don't know, I would, I would like to think we're on the, the other end of that, maybe, but who knows. And I don't necessarily think Satan created COVID, but has he used that to his effect and to his advantage? For sure he has, in the form of fear and all the other ways that he can use it. So if we take a look now at the ways that attacks come against us, and we use these to represent the symbolic nature of Satan, if we take a look here, look at verse 3. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare. Now, uh, Mary Poppins, right? Fox hunts. I've actually seen one of these at Patty's house. When I was house-sitting for her, like, I don't even know, 17 years ago when I was young and single, I woke up to a Saturday morning to bugles and people wearing red running through her backyard. And I was like, I thought that was like a thing in the movies. I did not realize fox hunts really happen. And on one level, a fox hunt's at least fair, I think, right? It's like the fox is not going to be surprised. There's bugles and beagles and horses and people wearing red like you know what's happening when you see these people move through you right but there's another way of catching animals and that's where the fowler comes into play right what does a fowler use to catch animals a snare which always involves what there's a couple things it involves i think there has to be bait and there has to be trickery like that bird has to stick its head through that noose to get those I don't even know what that is. Fruit, maybe? And does that bird have any idea what's about to happen to it? It uses the appetite of the bird for a destructive means. And the fowler's snare is out to get you and me. And Satan is a master of using the things we want against us, our own set of unique weaknesses. He can bait that with what works. And the crazy thing is we can all look at other people and look at what works on them and be like, how could that ever work on you? Without noticing the whole point of a fowler snare is I don't see the ones that are working on me. And yet if we make the Lord our dwelling, what does he say? I will rescue you from the fowler snare. If you decide in your heart that God is number one, is there a bait that's going to work on you? No. There's nothing that Satan can give you that's going to ultimately pull you away if God is number one. Because there's nothing you desire more than him. The fowler snare will be ineffective in its attack on you. 
And so there we have the Fowler snare. All right? The next picture we have is the trait is the line. All right? If you take a look, he will say in verse 11, I'll read through from 11 to the, the end now. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Does anyone recognize that text from another place in scripture? Anyone recognize who's speaking that text? Satan himself uses this text in Jesus' temptation. Very unique. We'll come back to that. But look at the, verse 13. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. And here we have the two most common pictures of Satan in the New Testament. The serpent and the lion. And here we have a lion. And he says this idea of a lion roaring, right? You will tread on the lion. And the unique thing is, who's doing the treading? You are. And we see the same thing in Romans 16, when, God sa- when Paul writes that the God of peace will trample Satan under your feet. Not, not his feet. He's using us, again, to bring himself glory, because how, how much can we trample, really? Nothing. So if somehow we manage to trample a lion, who gets the glory? He does. And here we have this lion that's out to get us. And yet, this lion that's out to get you is ultimately going to be trampled under your feet. And we have the imagery here. You will tread the lion. Again, not in your strength. Can't be in your strength. But in his strength, you will trample the lion. And the last one, the cobra. All right, so there's certain, certain snakes, I think, that are more terrifying than others. The Mozambique cobra, which I'm not sure if he's referencing this one. You know, he probably isn't. But they did have cobras in their day. And the thing about snakes that is kind of scary is two, two factors. Number one, they're not where you always expect them to be. So I did a job once when I was working for a mason, and it was out towards oh, Copake, that direction. And there was tons and tons of those black water snakes and of course, what kind of hose did these people have? A giant black hose. <laughs> and it was all, and I was like having to mix up cement, so I was always using the hose. First time I walk over there, I reach for the hose, and the hose moves. And I'm like, okay. And a black snake just shoots out. And so ever after that, I'm like, you know, throw something, see if the hose moves. Because snakes are often where you don't expect them. What if they were in your house? And in their culture and day, that would not be an abnormal thing. But a cobra specifically does what? It's not just dangerous because it's where you don't expect it to be. What is its trait? What is its ability? It can shoot poison and blind you. Does that not fit the characteristic of Satan? He's not where you expect him to be, and his number one job is to blind you to the truth. Because if he can blind you to the truth, guess what? You won't know even what to look for. And the cobra can be trampled on too. Again, not by you, but by God working through you. And when I did this message for the junior high kids or elementary kids, I got a squirt gun because I, I looked up like the cobra, how quickly can they shoot? They're super accurate and it's like getting shot with a water gun. Like you, if you are totally ready for it, maybe you can get out of the way, but they never miss. Like that was one of the things, like people who studied them, they're like, they, they hardly ever miss. If they're close enough to get you, they'll get you. And they'll blind you. And that is the mental picture that we are told of Satan, our adversary. So he carries these three traits. He's going to use your desires against you. He's going to trick you as much as he can. He is a lion who's out to destroy you and is way more powerful than you are. 
and he's a cobra that lies in waiting when you don't expect him and his goal is to blind you. That's what he's out to do. And if we take a look now at the account of Job, he's talking to God. What's he say to God? Does anyone remember, like, what is the accusation? Is this Satan's ac- accusatory role? Yeah. He only loves you because of, because you're so good to him. You stop being good to Job, and he'll curse you like any other human. Now, is that accurate for you and me? If God took everything from us, would there not be a temptation to accuse God? I know in my heart, like, I, I don't even have to lose everything like Job did. I mean, I can have a bad day and be like, what are you doing? And Satan is like, you take, you take your hand a blessing off of Job, and he'll curse you to your face. That's the first time we see God, Satan speaking. In this particular case, who's he speaking to? God. And God says, let's put that to the test. Let's find out, does Job love me for me, or does Job love me for the things I give him? And he lets Satan touch Job's life. Right? Because one of the things Satan wants to do is attack you. And the crazy thing is, I think he, I think he can say the truth a lot. He doesn't have to make up stuff about how bad we are, does he? But what do we see? The beauty of God to come into our defense. Because in Zechariah, we see the same thing happen. The prophet Zechariah, which again, most of us have not read recently. If you get bored, go read it. Super symbolic and confusing. But there's one part that's not so confusing. And that's in chapter 3 when Satan speaks again. Now, again, we don't have his words. We're just told what he does. And it looks just like Job. He's accusing Joshua, the high priest of Israel, of being a screwed up, sinful, broken person. And he's absolutely right. Joshua is a screwed up, broken person. And yet, there's a one who comes and says, but I stand in defense of Joshua. You have no right to speak here today. And Satan shut up at that point. So the first time we see, or one of the key times we see Satan speaking is to God. And here's the picture of Job when Satan talks to God. But then we see him talking two other times. When you guys already mentioned, he deceives people. He talks to Adam and Eve. And what does he accuse, or what does he say to Adam and Eve? He makes another accusation. He's really good at that. God's withholding things from you. Yeah. He's withholding his best. God has something so good, he doesn't want you to have it. He understands something called good and evil. Don't you wish you knew what good and evil was? And Eve's like, actually, yes, I kind of do. And so he throws this line out and says, did God really say? God, he's, he's holding back on you. If God really loved you, he would give you this. And it works. Because now he's accusing God's character to you. Now, how many times has that happened in your life? Where you either A, look around and see what other people have and are like, how come I don't have that? Or we think that God isn't giving us his best. And Satan comes along, and he speaks, and he twists, and he gets our eyes off of God, gets our eyes on something else. And as soon as that happens, just like Peter walking on water takes his eyes off of Jesus, we start to sink immediately. And Satan is really, really good at tempting Adam and Eve. And he succeeds. They are our first representatives. They get their first temptation, and they fail. Like, almost, I don't want to say instantaneously, because it tells us at least Eve thought about it. <laughs> for half a second, and Adam standing over here watching all of this happen and seemingly is not involved. Half a second later, all of mankind falls. Now, the third time we see Satan speak, fast forward a couple thousand years, is our second representative, Jesus. 
And this is where we see these words coming back again, right? Because Satan, in his temptation to Christ, says this, aren't you the Messiah? If you're the Messiah, then let's just, let's just quote some scripture of promises that God says. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Surely they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You're the Messiah. God is going to protect you. Why don't you put that to the test? Why don't you jump off the Temple Mount? Let's see. Let's see if God really will keep your foot from striking a stone. Can you think of a no better temptation? See, this temptation works best on spiritual people. It's using scripture, and it's saying something we wish and want to be true, that bad things won't happen to you. Now, Jesus knows the ultimate outcome of his own life, right? Is he just going to have his foot hit a stone? He's going to have his foot impaled by a spike because he's going to follow God. And so what does he turn to say to Satan? He uses scripture too, but he uses scripture accurately. And so here's where we see Satan is going to do everything he can to blind us to the truth, to give us deceptive things to pursue that are not good for us, to, to powerfully crush us when he can, and to even use scripture against us. So how do we, how do we combat this? He's like a master. He's a master at drawing what we want to see. And, and it's, it's really difficult, right? So we have our enemy laid out, we have Jesus laid out, and then now we're introduced finally to our last person, you and me, the unhurt promise, believers. And now we'll take a look at verse 13. He says this, we've already alluded to this, you will tread upon the lion and the cobra, you will trample the great lion and the serpent. Isn't it interesting that Satan stopped the quotation of this passage right about there? <laughs> he didn't move on to the next verse because what's that talking about? His own destruction, which he knows is coming. Verse 14, <clears throat> because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. So this brings us to the last composite drawing. Picture of us. We have the opportunity to hold on to these promises. There's seven of them. Seven promises. And again, as we've already said, in a very real way, Christ experienced the opposite of all of these promises in order that we can experience the blessing. That he will do these things for us because Jesus perfectly fulfilled everything that was required of us that we could never fulfill. And so we get, we're told these wonderful things. But here's the, the truth. We become like whatever we focus on. We become like whatever we focus on. So if Satan can draw an inaccurate picture, we will start to become like whatever it is we're focusing on. And if we don't have the correct picture of Jesus, we're in trouble. So, you know, here's two, two images we could be moving towards. Barbie and Jesus wearing a crown of thorns. Suffering before the crown. Suffering before the crown. We see that in Romans 8. Jesus called his disciples. No one can follow me unless they pick up their cross. Paul says at the end of his life in 2 Timothy that I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have complete the test. What's, he, what's about to happen to him? His head's about to be cut off, but he says, but I have received the crown of righteousness. But here's what happens. If we focus on Barbie, here's what we become. So you might have seen her. This is a woman who's literally gone through hundreds of plastic surgeries to look like Barbie. <laughs> right? Literally, this woman has looked at Barbie and become like her. And then there's Mother Teresa, who looked at Jesus and in many ways looked like him. Now, who's your Barbie? 
again, I don't think Barbie's probably the pursuit of anyone in this room. I think most of us know that that's an impossibility. But what are the things we're looking at that we're becoming like? Who is the focal point of our life? And again, Satan would want to draw a picture specifically catered to you that would cause you to draw towards that versus the accurate picture of Jesus. Because have you ever noticed that the, the imagery of Jesus and Satan are used similar? So I just want to show you just a few real quick. All right? We are told that the fowler wants to tie you down and bind you. Sin does the same thing. Sins of the sin are, are often said to be cords that tangle me down. But Jesus also says that I want to draw you to me with cords of loving kindness. He wants to tie you down too. But he wants to tie you to him. The imagery of a lion is often used of Satan, right? First Peter tells us that he's a, a, a prowling lion, roaring, looking for someone to devour. What's the, what's the parallel? Who's, who's Jesus in comparison to a lion? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Right? Notice, noticing some parallels? Satan is said to be a snake. If you remember the account with Moses, the people were being bit by snakes because of rebellion, and he holds up a snake, a bronze snake, and says, anyone who looks to this will be saved. Jesus borrows this imagery and says, anyone who, when I am lifted up, anyone who looks to me will be saved. Jesus actually uses the imagery of a serpent as a picture of salvation. Satan's name, some people, in, I think it's in Isaiah, talks about Lucifer, the, the bright morning star. Jesus uses similar imagery, the bright morning star. It's just this idea. Satan would seek to draw a line as close to, to Jesus as he can without actually directing you towards him. Because if you think you're looking at Jesus, but you're really looking at Satan, you become like him. And what's the difference between a good lie and a bad lie? A good lie looks an awful lot like the truth. An obvious lie, no one's false for those. But a lie that looks like the truth is the most devious kind there is. And if Satan is the father of lies, what should we expect? Lies that look an awful lot like the truth. And even the imagery that Satan uses looks like the imagery of Jesus. So how do we know the difference? We must know this. It is the only way. We're going to be able to sort through the things of the world that look an awful lot like what we want to be true. How do we, disort, how do we distinguish that? By knowing the picture of Jesus, by knowing the truth, and living though dying. All right, Jesus makes this statement. So if you take a look here, the promises in verse 14 are rather unique. So I want to read through those again, and then I'm going to draw one more parallel, and then we'll come back to uh, Ted Kaczynski. Because he loves me, says the Lord. I will rescue him, I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer. Now let's pause right there. Has there been times in your life you felt like you've done those things and it didn't happen? You called on his name, feels like he didn't answer. You needed protection, and bad things happened. Does it feel like that's ever happened to you? It does to me. But take a look what he goes on to say. I will be with him where? In trouble. Not that you'll never go through the trouble, but I will be with you in the trouble so that the worst thing, the separation from God, will never be true for you. I will deliver him and honor him with a long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, again, Jesus is going to make a statement um, in Luke. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I will 
I will, I'll read it to you, but if you want, just to look over at Luke 21, because Jesus makes, again, a statement similar to this that sounds like a contradiction, but again, we have to draw back and take a look at the bigger picture. So Luke 21, here's what Jesus says. Again, ending, ending his life, he's coming near the end. Uh, Luke 21, verse 16, here's what he says. You will be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Wait a minute, what? Did anyone see the seeming contradiction here? <laughs> Look, he says, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. So it sounds like he's saying, if you follow Jesus, what's going to happen to you? <laughs> on one level, nothing. Not a single hair on your head is going to be hurt. And yet at the same time, on the other hand, you're going to be killed for your faith. How does, how does that line up? And again, it draws us back. If we expect to go through life experiencing no suffering, we are going to be met with a whole lot of sad expectations gone wrong. But if we recognize the fact that we will have trouble, we are going to experience persecution, people are going to dislike us because of what we do, what we believe, how we live. But God will be with us in those troubles, and the real you, the deepest you, is never going to experience death and separation from God. Right? And that's what I wanted to kind of show with this picture of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. Right? It's not that they didn't experience troubles, but God was with them in the trouble. And this is a physical picture of a spiritual truth. You will never be cut off from him. In the midst of agony, he will be there. And the real you, the invisible spiritual you that's never going to die if you're in Christ, we'll be protected forever, left untouched by anything in this world. Last one. So God has the last word. Not Satan, and not you, and not the world. God has the last word in this text. He says, the Lord says to you. He gets the last word. And last but not least, knowing the heart. So Ted Kaczynski, that famous drawing, was circulated. And you would think that after that drawing was circulated, how quickly would Ted Kaczynski be captured? I mean, if you were telling the story and you could write it any way you wanted, a witness sees him go in, draws this amazing sketch. It's published across the entire country so that almost every single American is looking for that guy. How quickly would you expect him to be caught and found? A couple months? Pretty quickly. Eight years later, still was not caught. Eight years. Now, in part because Ted Kaczynski you know, lived here. This is literal pictures of his house. He lived out in the middle of nowhere, didn't even have electricity. That is the inside of his house. That is the outside of his house. They were never going to easily catch him because there was no way to trace him. He lived off the grid, literally off the grid, and he would drive miles into cities in order to mail bombs to other parts of the country and then go back to his hidey hole in the middle of nowhere. But in order, in order to get his message out there, Ted Kaczynski wanted to write his manifesto, all right, that, his Unabomber manifesto. I'm pretty sure if you're super interested, you could read it. So it's only 30,000 words, <laughs> which is a lot. And so the, he, he made this promise, though. If you publish my manifesto in the New York Times, I will not bomb people for a while. And so the New York Times was like, okay, it's kind of long. We'll break it up. So they started publishing his manifesto. Ted Kaczynski's sister-in-law is reading this thing, and she says to her husband, David Kaczynski, this manifesto sounds an awful lot like your brother Ted. Like, 
the word choices, the the ranting kind of nature. It, he sounds just like your brother. And David Kaczynski's like, no, my brother doesn't look like the Unabomber guy at all. Like, I, no. And she's like, just read it. So David Kaczynski picks up the manifesto and he says within the first two paragraphs, he's like, I knew it was him. And so David Kaczynski, the brother of Ted Kaczynski, is the one who actually led to the arrest. And what led to the truth? Not a picture of a face, the heart. Knowing a person's heart is what led to Ted Kaczynski's capture. Now here's just what I want to say, right? We can have compositions all day long. We can have our pictures of who Jesus is. We can have our pictures of who Satan is. We can have a picture of who we are. And they can all be accurate, in our heads and have zero impact on actually changing anything. It's not until these truths actually change our hearts, till we speak with our hearts to God and he speaks to us, is change legitimately going to happen in our lives. So again, teaching the scriptures, understanding the Bible is necessary. It's groundbreaking. It's, it's needed. But if these things don't move from the head to the heart, nothing actually changes. And Ted Kaczynski keeps bombing people. But once his heart was seen and understood, that's when change really happened. And it had to do with reading. So I'm going to try to flip the script a bit and say, can we know Jesus with our hearts by reading what he's written? Can we know him that way? And would that be something that we would be able to instantly recognize so that when something comes along that looks like this, what we know from the word impacts the way we see it, and instantly we're like, yep, that's Jesus, I can tell. Because I have read his thoughts and his words so much that his thoughts, I recognize. I see them. I know them. And now I can actually make choices built on what he says, not on what I just think I see with my eyes. I can walk by faith and not by sight in that way. And so one of the challenges for us is to know Christ's character. Who is he? Allow those promises that he makes to become true for us, and then trust that we can live them out, that we can do what he says, authentically do what he says, and that he will be with us in our trouble so that we will one day be able to, as this text says, have a long life satisfied with salvation. That's our end game. That's where we're moving towards. And right now we have the opportunity to dwell with him now, know his character, know his heart, and let that change us. Yeah, let's pray. Lord, we... Uh, there's so much in this world that we could focus on. And many of them are very good things. Help us, Lord, to be able to distinguish what you've called us to do. Help us to be able to distinguish your nature, your character, from the evil one who would seek to deceive us and trick us, have us look at the wrong things, value the wrong things. Uh, help us, Lord, to know your heart. And I pray that you would open us up to experience you. We thank you, Lord, that you went through all the, the suffering on our behalf that unlike us in this text, you were not present. God was not present with you in your trouble. And when you called on him, he legitimately did not answer you. He did not deliver you. He did not honor you. He did not give you a long life. And you went through all of that on purpose for our sake, knowing that we could have those things because you did not have them. Help us, Lord, to walk patiently, humbly, and with great grace and truth in this world. In your name we pray. Amen.